Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Majestic music indeed, signaling the beginning of today's installment of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Good day to you. I am Nikki Dakota, joined in the studio by the film guys this afternoon. This is no ordinary day in so many ways. George Williman, film nitrate, nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress, live in the studio. George, welcome. Guten Tag. Guten Tag. And also back from a long absence, we have missed you so, J. Todd Anderson on location in Wiseau. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Storyboard artist for the Coen oh, yeah. Brothers for 20 years and running, and now working with George Clooney on his Leatherheads, but back with us for this little while. J. Todd, welcome. It really is good hey, to see you. We're, we're going to go back to 1930 today. 1930. And ladies and gentlemen, this is... This story is neither an accusation nor a confession, and at least of all an adventure, for death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped its shells, were destroyed by the war. We bring you the greatest, one of the greatest anti-war films of all time. All quiet on the Western Front. I have to tell you one thing about this amazing movie, gentlemen. First of all, it is perfect in every way. It's a perfect film. It is Fits right into our amazing. rules. Amazing. Uh, before we do that, I just want to tell you that I watched it uh, first on Wednesday night, uh, just getting ready to just to drift off there, and I found it so compelling. Not only could I, I that's a, found that's it, a wonderful movie to drift oh, off to. Nathan. I found it hard to get to sleep, but then I had nightmares. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, throughout, it is all quiet on the Western Front, and it is perfect in every way. I fully concur. Which brings us to the fine point. The uh, the distinction of filmically perfect, that this is not arbitrary, this does not come out of the clear blue sky. There are strict and stringent rules for exactly how film can be perfect. Okay, this film is perfect because it creates the world it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, it retains its meaning and entertainment values. <laughs> And we will never place it in any kind of preferential or numerical order. This film is perfect on its own scale. And more eerily, it's really relevant to what's going on today. Absolutely. Particularly rule number three coming through on this. It could have been made last week. Uh, man, it's all over the news right now because of Iraq. This, this movie runs in parallel proximities of time, space, and matter, regardless that it was made 76 years ago. So All Quiet on the Western Front made between the two world wars. Not even, you know, in the horrors that were to come. It's not even a reaction to that. It's a reaction to World War One, made in 1930 after uh, World War One had uh, come a to serious, a serious, serious anti-war tone, and it's, it's all over this movie. They're not bashful about it, and it disappears right before World War II, this, this tone, but it is, it is re-emerging with what's going on now. It re-emerged briefly during Vietnam, and now it's back. And this movie issues, everybody will say, oh, that's that terrible cliche of the sergeant beating these guys up, and then they get him, that terrible cliche of this, that. This is the movie that started all those cliches you watch on Band of Brothers, any World War II movie, 
all those cliches were started here in this movie. That's right, and and it is quite a um, quite notable of Universal to have even tackled this project at the time because you know 1930, and actually the film was started earlier. It was started as a silent film, so it was like 10 years after World War One, and they were tackling this huge anti-war um, uh, subject, and actually showing. Uh, the enemy, our enemy from that time, the Germans, as as sort of as the the, the positive force in the film. Well, let's uh, let's just back up just a little bit and mm-hmm. just begin to paint. I I didn't realize it first because I'm not even sort of smart enough to have recognized the helmet. I didn't get oh, those cool pointy helmets. The man, pointy man, bizarro. Those are the coolest pointy helmets, helmets you'd ever seen in movies. <laughs> you know? And it accurately uh, disappears, and they bring on the the German helmet that we all know from World War II. But it's very accurate in its costuming. Boy, these they bring these soldiers and they're dressed barely, and then they bring them into the end of the movie, which they have the full accompaniment. It's very historical. They have horses pulling wagons and trucks. And it's, it's fantastic. Accurate, I mean, yeah, the movie. details, absolutely astonishing. But because I'm a little bit slow on the uptake, I did not – I was several many minutes into the movie before I realized these are Germans. Yes, yes it's very much like Letters from Iwo Jima. Or, or I think we should say Letters from Iwo Jima is very much like – all quiet on the western front. Well, that's front. the accurate, but we have yeah. to we have to make sure people understand that uh, this is an old movie here, and uh, but when it's you set come a standard in and a way. when you watch this movie, when you watch it, you'll say, "Wait a minute, these guys are the other guys," you know. Yeah. And the screen, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's very much like Letters of Iwo Jima, or Letters of Iwo Jima is very much like this movie. <laughs> Thank you, Nikki. <laughs> Sorry. I am talking to a modern audience here. <laughs> That's right. Uh, there's a lot of similarities yeah. in these two pictures here. It's well, so funny because it's from the German German point of view, and yet it was before Hitler, before right. before that we the German as an entity that we came to know, you know, during and after World War II. But uh, let's just take a step back and just take us through uh, the 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 workings, which actually fo- hist- historically follows the beginning, you know, how the war and how the 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 people were gathered together and convinced to go. But George, tell us you know how it how how it opens and how well we're the the film basically starts. The war has already started, and it's it's the first year of the war, so it's like 1914, 1915. And um, at a school in an unnamed German town, this older uh, teacher is is uh, giving a speech to his young students while the army marches outside. It's a really striking scene. Yes, and Which, incidentally, uh, when you watch that. It's the Frankenstein village. Uh, if you watch it very carefully, it's the Frankenstein. Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's true. It's true. Yeah, it's this European village that I believe still stands at Universal. It's still City. there. It's still there. You'll see actually, it on the tour. If it wasn't blown up in the yeah. making of this movie, no, my heavens! Um, but anyways, the the teacher is is talking to his students about them being the Iron Men of Germany, and we have a little a little piece of that right here. You are the life of the fatherland, you boys. You are the Iron Men of Germany. You are the gay heroes who will repulse the enemy when you are called upon to do so. It is not for me to suggest that any of you should stand up and offer to defend his country, but I wonder if such a thing is going through your heads. I know that in one of the schools, the boys have risen up in the classroom and enlisted in a mass. And of course, if such a thing should happen here, you would not blame me for a feeling of pride. 
How so, can you resist that call? How can you resist that call? Even not well, they don't. Me. They don't. They they rise up. They rise up together, and they they mass sing hysteria one of their, takes the whole class. You boys, right? you boys, all the boys. They they sing one of their marching songs, and they head out. They all they all enlist, and and, and off they, they go. But interestingly enough, one of the characters that you meet just very briefly at the beginning of this film is a postman yes. in a town named Himmelstoss. He's my favorite character. Uh, and and Himmelstoss, I looked, I kind of tried to translate it, and Himmelstoss is kind of like, kind of like a hit from the sky, is what Himmelstoss means. It was he the guy that comes back to be there. He comes back he's and the he nemesis. becomes their drill sergeant. He's the cliche I did in not the movie make that, that connection. Yeah. He's the oh. the, cliche, the the person that forwarded all the cliches. Right. I'm doing this for Nikki, of course. <laughs> But Thank he, you. He is the he is the pattern for all cliches to come. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But basically, Himmelstoss at the beginning is sort of a, a joke with the local kids. They kind of pick at him and they mess up his mailbag and stuff like that. But when they get to basic training and they find out that he's their drill instructor, he just turns into this just completely sadistic <laughs> mm. creature, takes them out and drills them and drills them and forces them to slog through the mud. And and although at one point you say, well, you know, he's teaching them how to put up with this. No, it becomes very obvious that he delights oh, he's in torturing My these boys. favorite character. <laughs> but they finally get back to him one night. He, uh, the night before they're to go up to the front, uh, he uh, screws them over once again and, <laughs> and basically makes, you know, forces them into the mud. They all have to get cleaned up, and they lose their, their liberty that's been given to them by the commander. Another cliche. So they go out that night, and they find Himmelstoss coming home from the, from the uh, tavern, completely drunk. They grab him, uh, cover him with a tarp, and yank his pants down and beat him with swords across his bottom, <laughs> and then throw him in a puddle. Now, really full metal jacket, you know, that guy got beat up with soap with bars soap bar, and yeah. stuff, you know. Ah. So that's how that, that little scenario just... These guys started it, and now we're going to live with these movies for the rest of our life. 1933. That's right. astonishing, so, really. So they get to the front, and almost immediately they find out that there's no food. That the, the food wagons are, are not coming. They have to kind of scrape around for it. <clears throat> they begin to meet some of the old-timers who are there. There's uh, one soldier named Chaden who, who plays very – he's kind of the kind of laconic – uh, not defeatist, but he's played actually by a, a very famous silent comedian, Slim Somerville. Oh, um, I didn't realize kind of that. Tall, yeah, tall, skinny guy. Kind of a sweet and, character. You're very, yeah. very, very disposed to him. And uh, but the main character they meet is Sergeant Cat, who is played by this probably one of the most wonderful faced actors ever, Louis Wolheim, who looks like a pug dog. Yes, I mean, and he was he a looks, boxer. He always great. looks good, no matter what angle. Man, he looks good. <laughs> and he becomes he becomes a surrogate father to all the young soldiers, and they, they look up to him. Um, and the first thing they get to go out, they have to go out and lay barbed wire one night, and it's absolutely terrifying. It's their very first real right. assignment. Yeah. And it's so terrifying for one of the soldiers that, and, and amazingly that you were able to, uh, Milestone was able to, to portray this in somewhat a tasteful way, one of the uh, the soldiers on the first big explosion basically takes a dump in his pants. Yeah, and and Kat says, "Don't worry about it. It happened to me. It still happens to me." You know, so <laughs> so right off the bat, things are going downhill. Yeah, and uh, basically the their their combat degenerates into just trench warfare. They're stuck in a bunker, and finally they're called out for their first big bombardment. And it is one of the most terrifying battle scenes ever filmed. Very be- frightening. I, I compare it to for modern audiences, Nikki. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Letters of Iwo Jima when the Corsairs attack. Ooh, that's very scary. It's very much like that. You Listen, know? It's, I can't believe somebody wasn't killed in the filming of it. It's so realistic. Bombs are going off right next to people. Oh, I'm sure. guessing all this OSHA stuff wasn't in place. I'm yeah. astonished that no one died. Nah, I'm the, sure the, if an actor was killed, they'd say, ah, get him out of here. Another stick of lumber. <laughs> oh, Bring in his extra. Don't worry. There's somebody to replace him. <laughs> oh, 
Well, as I said oh, earlier, the the film harrowing. the film was originally started as a silent, and then you know because sound was coming in, right? everybody had to to get on the sound bandwagon suddenly. And Universal told Milestone, who was already in production, you know this is going to be a sound film. Well, unlike many directors who were not able to deal with this, Milestone grabbed that bull by the horns and just I, it's amazing. Uh, the battle scenes, uh, I mean, these were like the first major sound battle scenes done for pictures that were not real, that were staged. And Milestone told the sound engineers he wanted to scare the audience. So they actually did some some rudimentary, almost experimental mixing of this soundtrack. And and the explosions and the mix of so- of, of just noise and a bit of a bit of dialogue here and there, uh, but mainly just the noise of the battle is oh, truly just This is optical. And on and this on. is not magnetic tape. This is optical printing. This is when you see the little optical stripe on a film. This is what they use to mix with. And at the end. Which you'll say, aha, they can hear that airplane. I think one of the problems back then is they had a hard time recording that airplane right. to get it to be effective. That's when you watch this movie, you say, ah, oh, they would have heard that airplane. Well, there wasn't too many airplanes in the sky and about this time. And uh, don't you think, George, is that they probably just couldn't get a handle on how to record that airplane? I, maybe not that so much as a, I think it was just sort of a, a feeling that that milestone wanted to capture because a lot of the, he does a lot of interesting little sound tricks throughout the movie. Uh, including when you get to the ending, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, are we going to have to keep – should I get the spoiler, spoiler alert ready? Yes, you should better I? put the spoiler right, alert. So All right, brace you yourself, know. folks. Just so you know. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Helmets on. There duck will and be, cover. Duck and there cover. There will be spoiler a spoiler alert. So we find ourselves with these young, very innocent schoolboys who and their have their hair is always combed in battle. Right. It, it is. Well, it's so it's short. It's, it would be hard to mess it up. No but, hat uh, hair on these guys. <laughs> well, anyways, at the, at, in this first bombardment, they learn, you know, they begin to learn about death and what war is all about. And um, as the story progresses and, and things just keep going downhill, um, Paul, like the whole film is seen through Paul Baumer's eyes, who is played by Lou Ayers. And um, the, uh, after the next battle, a lot of the people end up in, in a hospital. And one of the people who ends up in a hospital is a guy named Kemmerich, who is played by Ben Alexander, who a lot of people remember as, uh, as Sergeant Friday's first um, uh, sidekick on the early TV dragnet show, Ben Alexander. And um, Kemmerich is noted for these boots that he has. He has this beautiful set of boots and he's very proud of them. And he ends up in the hospital, and he ends up losing a leg. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He talks I about, tell you, yeah. This is, for me, it was, it's worth the whole movie. This little piece of cinematic treasure, when you watch the scene where this guy loses his leg. Now, what's really going to be kind of hard to handle is that it's very pertinent to what's going on right now, right oh, this very yeah. minute with the uh, the problems with the hospitals and the, and the Iraq soldiers. And Plus, the, uh, it's just so pertinent. People you know? who might actually die on the battlefield are being uh, saved now, these days. In this war, people are being saved, but they're m- losing much more higher percentage of limbs because you know we, people survive these, these accidents. Well, so amputation is a major issue in, this in our scene, current war. In this scene, they just kind of say, kind of like, uh, now remember, Gone with the Women is filmed after this. You'll say, that's very similar. Well, is this is what's going on yeah. he says one of the soldiers says you have no use for those boots i would like to have those boots and he becomes co- he starts to covet these boots from and the then man will, lying there yeah and the guy is almost dead it's almost and you get the impression that he would like to push him along but no it's justified because he's saying i need those boots and and then one of the greatest little pieces of film you ever see is when he's walking out of the hospital and this camera shows the walker's boots and then the camera goes up and they see these brand new boots 
and then they go up to the character that's Lou Ayers, and you see he's changed. And this is where I like to say it gets better. This movie starts chugging along in areas you never dreamed of and you've forgotten. And then he marches out to the lines. Everybody's saying, hey, where'd you get those boots? And then it keeps going. You see these boots go through a series of people. I mean, like literally, you're seeing right. the boots. First first. Ghost soldier. And by the time we get finished with this beautiful little montage that is just a cinematic masterpiece to this day and many, many emulations of this, right, George? Mm -hmm. You see that he has compressed time in this movie. He has jumped through maybe two and a half years in this picture. And this Just picture using the boots. is going to be a story of attrition. It looks like it's never going to end in the storyline. That is not the movie, but the storyline seems, okay, where does it end? And it doesn't really end. You're listening to Film Weekly Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. The film guys and I are talking about All Quiet on the Western Front, one of the finest movies ever made, and I fully concur. Uh, some of the greatest cinematography, I wanted to mention something about what you guys have taught me so much since we started Yay! these 29 weeks ago. Um, when we did The Searchers and how the whole thing started with the door opening and then uh, the darkness that surrounded the door into the light of what was happening outside, and then it actually ended in that way too. This movie makes amazing use of doors. Yes, it starts that way. With, and, I, and it's because... Only because I know the two of you, because I don't know if I would have fully appreciated it. It's could, could we beautiful. hear that again, please? <laughs> could, could you just say that for us? Could you write that I have down learned for so us? much from oh, the film guys. J. Todd Anderson and George Willeman schooling me every Friday. No doubt about it. It's beautiful. It's masterful how he presents these details and what using portals, because so much of this movie is about crossing thresholds, crossing you know the line of no return, and uh, just Nighttime absolutely photography in this movie. And I even think uh, one. One of the doorway things that just hit me, it's not really a doorway, but it has a sort of portal thing, is uh, one of the big battles near the end. In fact, I think it's the last big battle in the film. They're, the, uh, they're blowing up a graveyard, and they're running through the graveyard. Oh, that's so and, and Paul, awful. Paul leaps down into one of the blown up graves and suddenly realizes that he's looking through the bottom of a casket that Beautiful he's been shot. blown through. And his Marvels. eyes get really big, and he leaps up. So there's another door. So where did they do that blowing up? Like, there's, like when they all... first... It's amazing. It's got it. And it's so real. It's clearly real. Yeah. Obviously, there's no computer aid no. In, in, in any of this. It's all special effects, folks. And that was all, all uh, down out in California. I mean, that was out. I don't know if it was on uh, Universal and some of the other studios had big ranch areas and, and there was a lot more open space out there than there is now. Um, but, yeah, I believe all that was shot in California. Um, and all those, I mean, those battlefields are humongous sets that were built. That. And you know, amazing. back then, now nowadays on a set, like on Leatherheads, we, it's a pretty big deal. We have a lot of football players and things like that. But the ADs all have radios. We have Assistant lightning speed communications. Mm -hmm. Back then, when they had a thousand extras out there, they had to use megaphones. And can you imagine? They just didn't have any of the technology that we have now to move crowds. Now, if we reset a shot, it takes a few minutes to get a thousand people up on the hill so, you know, Patton's army can come down. But back then, they had to do it without technology. Absolutely but, astonishing. And on the story front, um, there's a great <laughs> section where after the first big battle, they're all kind of sitting around. The young men are all sitting around along with, the, with some of the old guard. And they're talking about what this war means and why they're fighting it and how it got started. And, and to cap it, old Sergeant Cat comes up with his solution of how the next war should be fought. I'll tell you how it should all be done. Whenever there's a big war coming on, you should rope off a big... Field and sell tickets. Yeah. And on the big day, 
You should take all the kings and their cabinets and their generals, put them in the center dressed in their underpants, and let them fight it out with clubs. The best country wins. How many that. times have you heard that? Movie? I heard that said before. Uh, Frankie goes to Hollywood in the '80s. Had a whole video devoted to that whole notion. Like, yeah, let them fight it out. I thought Frankie goes to Hollywood thought I it think out. Cheney can get out there and you know <laughs> go out there and get his wheeze bag and go start swinging at uh, whoever's in charge. Man, of I think he'd be the out civil early. War enemy is in Iraq. No, right? He's got a bad ticker, you know. Well, I think the sight of just the sight of him in his underpants would probably be enough to <laughs> to stop things right there. And George behind okay, him. You know what? Hit him! Hit him! Hit him! <laughs> hit him, Dickie! Hit him! You can swing! I know you can! We're talking about All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, that's front. what we were doing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty hard to talk about this movie sometimes. It's so relative. Oh, man. You know, in this movie, when we did The Searchers, we talked about screen direction. And this is a marvelous, marvelous exposition of screen direction. In fact, in the movie, in the beginning of the movie, you say, hey, these guys are going right to left, you know, because and, and you understand they're all speaking English. They sound like Yanks, but they're not. They're the Germans. They've already started manipulating you with screen direction. It's at the so end, brilliant, isn't it? Isn't that brilliant? And at the brilliant? end, their last charge through the cemetery is left to right. <sighs> oh, they're going to win for us. Then you find out they get mashed back down into those graves, that eerie, eerie scene where they're all getting creamed into these, these caskets. And it's going right to left. And then you understand... There, this movie just is. This is what's going on in World War One here. It never really ended, you know. It's just. Uh, it becomes. Uh, how do you say that, George? Uh, uh, what was the final of, version of that war? It was. Uh, oh, the Arms- war to end all Armistice. War. Yeah, oh, the armistice. Was yeah, it wasn't really as. It, it just never. They just agreed to stop the senseless fighting. Yeah, it's much. all there in that movie. It's very, very obvious. Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Every week we take a look at some of the finest cinema ever to meet the eye, and this certainly falls in that category. On the uh, rule number one, it certainly creates the world, and my goodness, it just transports you uh, back there. You, I, I bought in instantly, immediately, and was there for the whole ride. It's a long movie, too, yeah. over two hours. Two hours and 15 minutes. Sustains that without question, and the fact that we can draw parallels almost just uh, step for step to uh, how we conduct ourselves in war today. Today absolutely fulfills rule number three that it sustained its entertainment value and cultural relevance, no question. I'm sorry. The, the, the final cap of the movie, really, the, the whole kind of point the, the, is, is when, when he returns, when Paul returns to his hometown. He's, he's, he's a hard soldier now. He's got the, what's that, the, the 50-yard stare or whatever uh. you want to call it. And he goes back. He, he goes to dinner with his father and his friends, and they all have the, the plan. They're all the old white guys. They have the plan for winning the war. And so he goes back to his school where his teacher, the same teacher, is still spouting the same old story. And the teacher has him come in and tells him to speak to the students and tell them what it's like to be in the war. I can't tell you anything you don't know. We live in the trenches out there. We fight. We try not to be killed. Sometimes we are. That's all. No. No, Paul. I've been there. I know what it's like. But that's not what one dwells on, Paul. I heard you in here reciting that same old stuff, making more iron men, more young heroes. You still think it's beautiful and sweet to die for your country, don't you? Well, we used to think you knew. But first bombardment taught us better. It's dirty and painful to die for your country. When it comes to dying for your country, it's better not to die at all. 
There are millions out there dying for their countries. And what good is it? So basically, Paul is goes back to the battlefield because he can't stand being around this old life. It doesn't mean anything to him anymore. When he gets back, most of his comrades are gone. Um, uh, the only one left is, is well, Chaden, who, sur- who survives the whole movie, amazingly enough. And, and he goes out and he finds uh, Sergeant Cat. And as they are reunited, Cat... Uh, <laughs> I had wow. to put that oh, in there because okay. it really is the... Oh. Yeah, Cat gets hit by some shrapnel in his leg from an airplane attack. And so Paul has to pick him up and carry him. And as they're carrying him back, another bomb goes off nearby and, unbeknownst to Paul, uh, kills Sergeant Cat as he's carrying him back. It hits him in the back of the neck, therefore sort of kills him instantly with no noticeable. He's already bearing the burden. He's going to carry him back to safety. So he carries uh, him back to the tent, and the guy, the orderlies check him out and said, well, you could have saved your time. This guy's dead. And then they go back to playing cards. So the the final image of the film is Paul all by himself, in the trenches, it's as as the title implies, it's all quiet on the Western Front, and he sees a butterfly. Tempted to hit that again, right here we go. This That's is right. It, yes. I got to say it. He sees a butterfly out there on the battlefield, and he was a butterfly collector as a youth. And he reaches out, and but he makes himself noticeable to a French sniper. And you see the hand coming down just to reach the butterfly. You hear a shot, and the hand pulls back. And that's the end of the movie. And the greatest thing about this is at the end of the film, I mean, Milestone wanted everyone to really digest this last moment. So the film fades out to black and remains black for almost 30 seconds because he wanted everyone to just sit in the theater with no sound (sighs) and think about what they just seen. You know, the the tone of this picture, you probably, when you're watching, you say, you know, I'm seeing some of this tone with what's going on nowadays, but it's hard to find it because you have reporters interviewing reporters about what's going on right now. So it goes through this media filter, which used to be just one filter where the reporters would ask soldiers about, tell us about, you're all quiet on them. Now you have like Mark Loratus sitting there talking about these soldiers being interviewed by another reporter. That's where we've come since 1930. The tone of this picture is very relevant. No question. The the last thing I want to mention is that this, the film that we can see today, the DVD that's just been put out, uh, probably would not have been possible had it not been for the work of uh, yes, well, not George me, Willman. not me personally. Because I saw but that, our I thought, people, I'm so yes, proud. Our yeah. our um our wonderful crew at the uh, the Library of Congress Motion Picture Conservation Center, currently at Wright Patterson, soon to be in Culpeper, Virginia. Out. That is a crack crew over there. I'm telling they, you, yeah. they yeah. spent many, I think, more than five years going uh, going slavishly looking for elements, uh, looking for soundtrack because the film over the intervening years since it was made had been cut like 17 different times. Because it's so long, and plus it's so brutal. Well, and There's... they kept changing the point of it. Like during World War II, they made it almost into a pro-war film. Oh, for heaven's you know? And so, sake. I mean, it constantly was getting changed and changed and changed until like nothing was left of it. It looked really bad. And fortunately, tucked away in Universal's vaults were some really nice fine grains made, you know, very close to when the film was released. So... So thank the Library of Congress for and being it is able to beautiful. See. It is a beautiful, beautiful print to watch. It looks like it was shot yesterday. Well, we're lucky to have it. Uh, this has been filmically perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Another perfect film, All Quiet on the Western Front. We do it every Friday, pretty soon, straight at 12:30. That's the bottom of the hour, just after the noon, high noon. Do tune in every Friday. <laughs> you know, every time lightning hits this building, we go into our room and we come out with like a hundred more perfect films. <laughs> 
smoke uh, comes out and we say, we've got them here. We've got them here indeed. We do it every Friday. Uh, I'm glad that you make us a part of what you do. And uh, check out Filmically Perfect uh, right here and also at their website, perfectmovie.net. Or you can find links to uh, what we do at wyso.org. J. Todd Anderson, storyboard artist to all the big stars. Thank you. And it's so good to see you Oh, yeah, person. you betcha. <laughs> George Willeman, Library of Congress, and then some. George, thank you. Oh, the pleasure. And next week, Superman the Movie. Superman! Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect. Coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.